From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you once again on your best Jewish current affairs and news update. And uh, we're excited. We're going to be bringing you some really, really interesting stuff. We're going to be talking settlers, uh, that thing that upsets everyone from BDS activists to the UN to everyone in between. And we're going to be talking about... Uh, a new book that's being launched about the settler movement and what it's all about. And uh, we're going to be talking to the author of the new book and finding out what it's all about and uh, just where the settler movement is going. We're talking to Dr. Sarah Hershon. She is from the University of Oxford. How cool is that, right? We don't, we don't uh, say we don't bring you the top of the top when it comes to Israel talking on this particular show. And she is the university research lecturer in Israel studies at the Faculty of Oriental Studies in this, and is a Sydney Brito Fellow at the Oxford Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies. Now, it is slightly a long uh, title, I know, but uh, it's probably quite a long book. Sarah, welcome to the show. Nice to be with you. Thank you so much for having me on, Benji. I'm really thrilled to get to speak to South African audiences again. What fun. Yeah, indeed, and uh, South African audiences will be listening to 101.9 HiFM or HiFM.com. Uh, but if you're listening to us on the Jerusalem Post, uh, then I suppose you're anywhere in the world. So uh, welcome to the show. You know, sorry, I was thinking just before the show, you know, there's that song that they that, that uh, must, must have been in the 90s or the 80s or something where it was talking about, you know, I'm an illegal alien, uh, I'm an Englishman in New York, but you're an, an American in England studying in Israel, studying stuff about Israel. That must be a little bit of a dislocation. Yes, I'm definitely a Yankee in King Arthur's court here. Um, forgive my accent to all the listeners abroad. Um, not much I could do about that. Um, yes, I've been in the UK now for about four years. So, been, um, Have you gotten used to the weather yet? I've not gotten used to the weather yet. Um, I don't think that will ever happen, but um, I, we can all live in hope, right? <laughs> yeah, indeed. And uh, you have been researching Israel. You've done even your PhD on the topic. And uh, you recently launched a new book looking at the settler movement and particularly American roles in it. What is the, the kind of full title and what is the kind of focus of the book? Um, the title of the book is City on a Hilltop, American Shoes in the Israeli Settler Movement. It will be out with Harvard University Press on the 22nd of May, although you can already pre-order on Amazon if you're so inclined. And I was very interested in, in examining the role of the settler movement because, as we know, over the past 50 years, um, it's grown from a movement of a handful of people to over 400,000. Um, and it's a very diverse um, constituency within it. It was once a movement of native Israeli settlers, includes people now from all over the world, including Americans, South Africans, Brits, um, and various immigrants of um, other kinds. Um, so I think it's very important to try and um, turn a lens on um, the diversity and heterogeneity of the settler movement 50 years into its history. Well, it is interesting that you say that. I think you point out in a number of the articles talking about the book and some of the issues that arise from it that the settler movement is kind of caricatured, if you like. It's about people with long hair and knitted kipot with a Bible in one hand and a machine gun in the other. And I think part of the point about your book, obviously not having read it as of yet, uh, is that actually 50 years on it is a much more 
general group and it has uh, even intergenerational differences. It's not just uh, what you're seeing on the news. Absolutely. Um, I, I tried to say that my book sort of started with the story of a stereotype, and American settlers in particular, um, especially after the uh, Hebron massacre in 1994, were very closely associated with those like Bob Goldstein. Um, but in fact, American settlers today comprise something like 15% of the Israeli settler movement, over 60,000 people. And, and, you know, it's very hard to say um, that there's any one um, one prevailing political, economic, or, um, you know, social dogma that they all subscribe to. Um, so I was very interested in really researching what, what the history of this constituency has been and sort of what have they been doing for the past 50 years. Settler terrorism is one arena where Americans have been quite prominent, but they've also been um, leaders and cadres in many other aspects of the settler movement, including transforming the public relations of the enterprise. And so I think it's important to try and understand the varied roles that they've had um, over time. One of the interesting things that's come out of your research is you talk quite a lot about liberal in the American sense, Americans who are ideologically driven to certain kinds of causes, civil rights movement, animal rights or whatever, who once they make Aliyah then becoming part of the settler movement, which probably wouldn't fit back into their domestic politics that they would have had in America. Uh, Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. So, I mean, it's sort of trying to understand how to square that circle because it does seem, you know, quite cognitively dissonant that people who, you know, were heavily involved in 1960s um, left its social movements, the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam struggle in the United States, you know, people that we could sort of define as tree-hugging hippies in America, um, you know, see themselves, um, you know, in the same vein living in, living in the West Bank. And in fact, I think that they see themselves as kind of continuing in this line of activism and radicalism, but in this case, in the interest of Jewish human and civil rights, and to them, those are their rights to live and to, you know, seek their future in part or all of the occupied territories. Um, So for them, they don't really see a contradiction between what their activities have been in the United States in the pursuit of, of, you know, human and civil rights and what they're doing in Israel. It's really a continuation. And to them, they might say that, you know, our contemporaries of our generation became, you know, suburbanites leaving boring, politically inactive lives in some, you know, nice, affluent city in the United States, whereas we became, you know, and, and we became and we continue to be the true radicals of our generation who didn't, you know, flag off activism after that heady period of our 20s and 30s, but we continue to be, um, you know, Jewish activists, um, throughout our lives, um, and felt that we could best express this um, in Israel and to them in greater Israel. I mean, what it's, it's an interesting point. Is it not just a case of people who are, you know, just swapping one ideology for another, someone who is predisposed towards being involved with heavily ideological causes and then finding that this one then becomes something that they can uh, suddenly engage with uh, once once they're in Israel? Yeah, I mean, I think that typically Aliyah or immigration from the U.S. to Israel is mostly an ideologically driven phenomenon to begin with. Most people are not, you know, escaping hardship or political turmoil like South African Jews may have um, when they immigrated to Israel. These are people who are making a very conscious decision to leave the Golden of Medina for 
you know, a future that, you know, may be somewhat more uncertain um, in political and economic terms for them than a very, you know, up until recently at least, a very secure life free of mostly of anti-Semitism in the United States, where, you know, Jews are, you know, fairly affluent, very heavily um, assimilated. So um, if you're going to pick your life up from New Jersey and move to Israel, or and certainly if you're going to move to greater Israel, you, you're, you're probably going to be something of an ideologue. So it's maybe not so surprising that these people who probably were certainly some of the most active um, in their generation in the United States continue to be sort of the same people when they arrive in Israel, people who are very politically um, politically engaged. I mean, politically engaged I, I is one that, thing, you know, right? When they have to square right. this circle for themselves, um, you know, it's not necessarily that they understood the context to which they were arriving. Um, most American Jews who immigrated to Israel came in the 1960s and 1970s, after the 1967 war. And those who settled in the occupied territories, at least initially, were doing so before the settler movement got very big and before um, the first Palestinian intifada. So they didn't necessarily appreciate, um, you know, exactly what they were doing in terms of their political project and how that would take a very, you know, violent and ideological turn later on. Well, that was going to be my next question. I suppose people who are Zionistically inclined might not have a deep problem with people wanting to go back to the biblical homeland and talk to the people and be part of the history and the religious sites, etc. I think I think most people could at least understand that at an ideological level. The, the perhaps values clash that one might consider is the fact that they're now rubbing up against these Palestinian populations that are not inside of Israel and, you know, might have issues around resources or ideology or whatever is driving a protest or whatever on that particular day. So how do these people see themselves in relation to their Palestinian neighbors? So I think that really what happens is that there's, an, um, you know, the first intifada is a really eye-opening experience for a lot of the settlers that arrived, um, you know, in, um, after the 1967 war and really started moving en masse to the occupied territories in the 1980s. And, you know, it's sort of where their liberal values, you know, rub up against their realities, um, ones that they might not have especially appreciated when they moved to a place like Afrat, where also many South African Jews moved in the 1980s, where they thought that they were going to live in a suburban paradise. And while it may sound naive to our ears in 2017, um, I spoke to many settlers who really thought that, you know, they were going to live in, you know, the whole pithy slogan of peace, love, and happiness with their neighbors. And they didn't foresee um, that, you know, Palestinian nationalism was so strong and um, that the influx of large numbers of settlers into the West Bank, um, especially in the 1980s, was really going to cause severe friction. Um, so um, I think that the first intifada was a major turning point um, when the settler population realized that um, it wasn't going to be a um, you know an entirely peaceful experience, and, and their attitudes towards the Palestinians changed after the first intifada, and certainly after the second intifada. But in the 1980s, a lot of settlers, I want to say, um, you know, it's very it's very rare to meet settlers who, um, you know, believe that uh, in Palestinian sovereignty or the right for um, Palestinians to um, to have a state of their own, 
um, you do find many settlers who are, I guess what we would call somewhat progressive when it comes to economic and civil rights for Palestinians, that they are interested in um, bettering the lives of Palestinians, if sometimes it would some of a patronizing gaze, um, and they, they certainly um, are not interested in Palestinians, um, you know, being discriminated against um, in terms of their civil rights, but, you, but certainly they do not see that Palestinians deserve national rights. But after the first and first intifada, and certainly the second intifada, a lot of these attitudes harden because they're on the front lines of the violence um, between the two communities, and certainly um, those that they might have seen as neighbors or people that they might live alongside peacefully um, become an enemy. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. If you just joined us on the show, we're speaking to Dr. Sarah Hershon. She is a researcher in Israel and in this particular topic, uh, the settler movement at Oxford University. And we're talking about her new book, uh, City on a Hilltop, Americans in the settler movement in Israel and just getting a sense about uh, the settler movement what is it today what was it in the past and perhaps what we're going to talk about now is how it will affect the future Sincerely, I said that I don't have any solutions to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict so if you're tuning in hoping that I'm going to solve it for you I think you might be a bit disappointed well, you know, you can certainly uh, we can certainly try. It wouldn't uh, it wouldn't hurt. One of the aspects that I do want to uh, ask you about as well is this idea that you know we spoke a little bit about the, the, the ideological, maybe the hardcore settlers, but a lot of people who are so called settlers in Israel at the moment might just be people who are a few meters or a few kilometers over the green line, maybe people who live in East Jerusalem or or South Jerusalem, North Jerusalem, or or perhaps just going there because it's cheaper than the, the central parts of the country and easy to get to places of employment and, and that sort of thing. Absolutely. I mean, something like upwards of 80% of the settler movement, and we're talking that's about, you know, 350 out of 400,000 settlers that live in the occupied territories today are primarily there for economic or quality of life reasons. That's not to say that they don't necessarily appreciate the strategic or political impact of their own activities, but that's not their primary goal. The largest constituency today among settlers of Haredim that, you know, can't, can't afford to live in Jerusalem or B'nai Brock or some of the other places where they've typically settled and are looking, you know, for cheaper housing for very large families or secular settlers that also just want to be able to have the quality of life that they can't afford in central Tel Aviv to have, you know, to have a house instead of a two-room flat. And um, so there are many different uh, reasons, and, you know, the national religious settler, the one that we sort of have in our minds and that we see on, te- you know, we see sort of caricatured on television or the radio all the time, is not really the dominant force in the settler movement today. And, you know, ideological settlers, you know, frankly, are in decline um, within the settler population as a whole. And yet we still do see things like Amona and people trying to settle hilltops, as you say, deeply in the West Bank. So it's not as if it's something which has disappeared. And if anything, it uh, seems to be a key driving force in Israeli politics today. Absolutely. I mean, I think, as you mentioned earlier, there's sort of a generational difference, right? So um, people who are in Amona or settling on the hilltops are also 
rebelling not only against the attitudes that they say within territorial Israel about, um, you know, the settler movement, but they're rebelling against their parents' generation, who they think now, 50 years into the settler movement, have really become kind of contented suburbanites living in really nice homes somewhere in the West Bank, you know, million-dollar mansions in Efrat. Um, and they don't see their parents as being, you know, particularly radical or the vanguard of Zionism anymore, and they really want to um, assert themselves as a new generation um, striving, you know, to, um, you know, continue to push the settler movement into a more ideological direction. So um, that is that is um, some part of the population, and, you know, certainly settler terrorism has increased um, as well. There is a very ideological dimension that exists, but when we think about the movement as a whole, there's still a relatively small percentage of... Um, small but very visible percentage of, um, you know, the population as a whole. In terms of um, impact on politics, since um, the 1970s, the National Religious Party, um, had, which was considered sort of the Knesset ally of the settler movement, um, sort of the legal arm of an extra-legal or extra-parliamentary movement, has certainly grown in strength, and that in its movie incarnation as Habayatayugui, the Jewish home under Naftali Bennett, um, has become a very powerful force. We have to remember that settlers themselves um, are only something like 400,000 voters in Israel. Um, if we include settlers who live over the Green Line in um, areas um, that have been annexed to the um, to the city of Jerusalem, which you know the international community considers to be settlements, but um, Israel considers to be part of Jerusalem, we're talking 550,000 voters. Um, so that's you know that's a very small percentage. Um, of, you know, the population of Israel. Even if every single settler, which is not true, but if every single settler voted for a right-wing party, that still would not explain why right-wing parties in Israel have become so prominent. So we have to sort of see this more as the scholar Ahish Frinzak spoke of the settler movement as kind of an iceberg phenomenon. That what we see is the tip of the iceberg, the settler movement, and specifically the kind of settler that we're, you know, accustomed being in the media, that, you know, that settler with his hippie clothes and his big knitted keypod um, and his, you know, as you said, his machine gun in one hand and his Bible in the other. But underneath that, submerged under the surface is really a huge block of Israelis that support ultranationalist policies and, to some extent, the southern movement itself for a variety of reasons. But they don't live in the occupied territories. They don't necessarily... Um, subscribe to some of the ideology of the settler movement, but they support it on a strategic and economic level for a variety of other reasons. And as we know, the state itself and the military are also um, actively supporting the settler movement on a daily basis. So let's just talk about that aspect, particularly you spoke about the economic aspect that sort of drives people into the, the territories. Uh, you know, it's not as if there aren't unsettled parts of Green Line Israel, you can actually drive for a while in the Negev without too much of a problem. The Galilee is full of places that uh, can be lived in quite comfortably and quite close to to national centers. What the kind of uh, structural drive that is kind of getting people into the territories in the first place? Right. Um, so, you know, as we know, probably most people of, you know, your and my generation are really entirely priced out of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, and are struggling to, um, you know, survive in Israel. I would say that, you know, as much as we talk about the Iranian nuclear crisis, you know, the real existential threat to Israel today is, you know, the educated middle class just not being able to make it, or certainly not being able to live 
um, you know, a good, secure quality of life in major Israeli cities. And it's true that, you know, alternatives exist, um, and there are, you know, sort of new developments in the Galilee. I know Nefesh Benefesh, the Aliyah organization, has been trying to really promote that to um, Anglo-Olin, um, the Negev, you know, as well. But, um, but mostly the state of Israel, for a variety of reasons, has, um, as you said, devoted a huge amount of resources to developing um settlements in the West Bank, um, and the proportion of resources that go to these communities as opposed to other parts of Israel is really disproportionate. And this goes back to the 1980s when, um, after the 1973 war, there had been a huge economic slump in Israel at the beginning of this whole process where, you know, people couldn't afford to live in the cities. There was this desire to try and settle them somewhere else. And sort of the strategic and economic um goals of the state and its populace began to align. Here was cheaper housing, but at the same time, by making a whole category of Israelis into suburbanites living over the Green Line, they also were able to achieve certain strategic objectives. So, um, namely, really kind of erasing the Green Line itself by making there no distinction, really, between where the average Israeli was living, either in territorial Israel or in occupied territory. So... Um, you know, both the state and the average Israeli were kind of happy to collude in this um, in this decision because it solves, you know, sort of kill two birds in one stone. So, um, and this, you know, this goes back um, a couple of generations already, but certainly, um, you know, if you're, an av- I, I have many friends in this situation who are not particularly ideological, but they get married, they have a couple of kids, they can't afford an apartment in Jerusalem anymore. So they think to themselves, what's the best best alternative? Okay, I'll move to a place like Tekoa. It's eight minutes from Jerusalem. It's over the green line, but, you know, it doesn't seem very far, and it seems like a nice place to live, so why not do that? Now, let's just talk about the the, the way that the settler movement has shifted uh, politics in Israel. Obviously, one of the key things that has uh, been a target of uh, the the settler movement is is the two state solution. And what's interesting for me that you cite in your book is that you talk about two state solution or the way you put it partition as being something of an anomaly in Israel, Palestinian, Arab, whatever politics in the last hundred years. And uh, and you say that perhaps. Uh, the, the reason why we're starting to hear alternatives or Bennett's pushing of annexation or whatever is that uh, you know perhaps it was an unusual event in the first place, although it's seen as a consensus position today. Right. I mean, it hasn't been an unusual um, policy option. It's been tried many, many times, but it's it failed many times. And you know, the idea that they were going to get a better outcome at Oslo. Um, it's a bit mystified to me because, you know, the idea of partition or, you know, two, you know, two, two states or two people has been tried since 1937 with the Peel Commission in Palestine by the British Mandate, which was abandoned. It was tried again in 1947, um, with the UN, UN partition plan, which of course was somewhat overtaken by the events of the 1948 war, um, and the boundaries of, um, you know, Israel that um, emerged out of the, you know, 1949 armistice agreement were different from that of what the UN had proposed. And, of course, Palestinians didn't get a state at all. Um, And, you know, in fact, Palestinians have been under occupation for their entire history um, as a people, whether that's the Ottomans, the Brits, the 
Jordanians and the Egyptians. And, you know, today Israel has never known, um, you know, sovereignty. And that, I think, is important to understand sort of their national consciousness. But um, back to sort of position, um, you know, 67, 73, um, you know, there was sort of a partition with Egypt in 82, but there's never really been a successful model, um, you know, sort of for dividing, you know, dividing these two countries. And, you know, frankly, I think from the start, um, Palestinians have never really been interested in dividing the land. And I don't say that as a value judgment, um, but I say that as sort of an historical fact of where, where their national movement has come down on this issue. I think it's been pretty consistent that, you know, their idea is of one state. Um, Israel, of course, historically has been more inclined, um, at least at the leadership level, to partition the land at various occasions. But we know that there's also very strong moments in within Israel, both now and historically, that were also in favor of one state or at least, um, and certainly of expanding the borders beyond any kind of partition that may have been agreed upon. This is what Ben Gurion famously said: that basically we'll take the borders that we have for now, but that doesn't mean that we might not expand them in the future. Um, so it's, you know, so when Oslo and this idea of land for peace is seized upon, um, as, you know, the solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the 1990s, I think it's a little mind-boggling to try and, um, you know, understand why, um, there was such hope that this would succeed. And there are certain structural factors that made it more likely in the 1990s than any other time in, you know, recent history that this probably had the best chance to succeed, but the paradigm itself, um, you know, hasn't always um, proved out to be something that either Palestinians or Israelis are particularly interested in, and you have to have a paradigm that, you know, basically your customer wants to buy. And yet the public polls, certainly up until maybe the last couple of years, if you looked at opinion polls, you would find consistently not only support for a two-state solution, both uh, in certainly in Israel, uh, but also in the in amongst Palestinians, and was interesting also the Palestinians looking towards Israel as being the kind of state that they would want to have. I understand that you know the governments perhaps have not always managed to get around the table, but it surely would be wrong to say that there was never public support. No, I mean in the days of Oslo, support amongst you know both Palestinian and Israeli populations, and you know very mass survey showed that something like 75 or 80 percent of the population were, were, you know, happy to accept the two-state solution. Now, that means that 20 percent of both populations at any given time were going to vigorously oppose this. And I think that, you know, in any case of peak processes or all over the world, and I mean, I think you experienced this also in South Africa, that there's always, you know, populations, you know, parts of the populations that are going to be hold out to change. And that, you know, happens everywhere. They call them in, you know, the professional literature peace process spoilers, but basically they're going to be the people that are going to resist, resist change. But since the 1990s, uh, for various reasons, you know, the Enscottos, um, you know, continuing collapse of the diplomatic process, um, changing regional um, regional situation with the Arab Spring, the global, um, you know, the global situation as well, um, we've seen those numbers decline, and now they sort of hover somewhere in the very low 50s. Um, so we're talking that now only, you know, half or a little bit more than half of both Israelis and Palestinians are interested in dividing the land. Um, and I wonder, and, you know, this can fluctuate, um, and certainly if there was more progress in the diplomatic initiative, I imagine that those numbers would go up. But 
I do wonder what happens on the day that isn't too far away when those numbers slip below 50%. And then you're asking, you know, a minority of your population um, is in favor of the political program that you're advancing. And, and, I, and I do wonder, you know, what, what's going to happen then? If, if nobody wants what you're selling um, as the two-state solution, you don't have a customer for your product, um, you know, is this really a viable solution anymore? From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. You're listening to the New Blue Review. I am Benji Shulman, and uh, you're listening to Dr. Sarah Hershon. She is a lecturer in Israel Studies at the University of Oxford. And uh, if you're listening to us on 101.9 High FM or highfm.com, or, or indeed on the Jerusalem Post. It's good to be with you. Now, Sarah, as an American, uh, I'm afraid you don't get to not have this question asked to you for at least the next four, perhaps eight years. Uh, what do you think that Donald Trump is going to have uh, as an effect on on the settler movement and in, in terms of de- Israeli domestic politics? Because we have seen already some shifts that perhaps would have been unusual during the Obama era that have been taking place that seemingly have been kind of made space by the new American administration. Yeah, um, well, Obama certainly left a huge parting shot to Trump with the UN resolution in, in December, which I'm sure that you've spoken about on this show before. And I think that the incoming Trump administration has been sort of trying to respond to um, to the policies of its predecessor. But it's really um, unclear to me exactly where Trump is going. Um, I think we could say that on a variety of topics that has, you know, uh, basically whose entire agenda is a bit up in the air at the moment, but um, the summit between Netanyahu and um, Trump a few weeks ago um, sort of left things up in the air. He said, I I kind of like the solution that both parties want, whether that be a one-state or a two-state solution. Then he clarified his remarks and said, actually, I really meant I support a two-state solution. And, but it, um, but Trump hasn't really had a very consistent policy um, since his future U.S. ambassador to Israel is fairly on record about being against a two-state solution. Um, and some of his other um, his other um, um, advisors also seem to be retreating from this position. So I guess we'll just have to see. The one really notable thing is that the kind of people in Washington, D.C. who have been traditional advisors to the president, you know, Dennis Ross, Martin Indyk, Aaron David Miller, the very familiar names to us from reading the Jerusalem Post or, you know, our, our local newspaper, really um, don't figure prominently in his administration. So for, for, for better or worse, um, it's kind of a situation of fresh blood. And I, I don't know what these people are thinking, but um, they may be thinking quite differently than the generation who, you know, advised the last four or five presidents consecutively um, have done in the past. Okay. I want to switch tack a little bit uh, away from the conflict itself and talk a little bit about the issue of Israel studies, uh, Zionism, uh, these sorts of issues in terms of our thinking as uh, Jews around the world in Israel, in the diaspora on these issues, you study at sort of the big name university, certainly in England, perhaps arguably around the world. You're in an Israel studies department, which is interesting because it's not in a Middle Eastern studies department. And you're kind of also in the middle of a 
academic boycott issues and anti-Zionism conferences and all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting place to be, I imagine. What, I'm, what I'd like to ask you is what do you think about the, the quality of Jewish academia at the moment? Are, are we as a Jewish people getting our best and brightest out there to think about the new ideas and the new approaches to things uh, that are out there and that uh, kind of need to be thought about? Well, it's a big, very big question. First of all, I should say it's never a dull, dull moment to the office. Today, with all that's going on, both in the Jewish world and outside, with the yes, you know, um, you know, coming to the closest academic campus near you. Um, I, don't, I don't know exactly what the dates are in South Africa, but this week is Israel Apartheid Week um, at Oxford. So there's certainly always um, uh, activity on campus around Israel Palestine um, and uh, um these issues are in our newspapers um, every day of the week. Um, so I came to Oxford about four years ago um, because the University of Oxford had decided to set up a program at Israel Studies. And just to clarify a little bit, I'm actually not in an Israel Studies department, but um, I'm in a faculty of Oriental Studies in the Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies. And the Israel Studies program kind of curiously exists it's something that's called the School of Interdisciplinary Area Studies. So the idea is that Israel studies will be treated on par with other areas, uh, area studies in the world. So that studying Israel will become no different than studying China or African studies or Latin American studies, um, which is, I think, an innovative way of approaching the issue. Um, you mentioned that I'm not in a Middle East studies faculty. Um, I should say that my predecessor was housed in the Middle East Center, but um, certainly all over the world, um, and I won't really comment about what's happening at Oxford, but generally all over the world, Israel Studies, for a variety of reasons, has been more commonly housed in Jewish Studies faculties. And I think the understanding is that Jewish Studies is going to be more friendly to the study of Israel than Middle East Studies, because Israel, um, in the global discourse, is now sort of framed as a colonial occupier in the Middle East, so... Study studies that very politically want to have Israel included within their portfolio. At the same time, you know, Jewish studies also has somewhat of an equivalent relationship to Israel. Um, you know, Zionism is only one aspect of the Jewish experience, and as we know, some Jewish studies professors themselves do not um, identify as Zionists, so there are two can be tensions there. But Israel studies has a bit of a unhappy relationships um, in academia. It doesn't exactly, like the Jewish people, it doesn't, it's been a bit of a wandering Jew of the academic world, and it's always sort of searching for um, an academic home, and sometimes it finds a variety of places to rest its head for the moment, and these are always up for up for debate. Um, Israel Studies obviously has um, a role... Um, a very visible role um, when it comes to discussions about, um, you know, BBS or the academic boycott, but I think what Israel Studies is trying to provide is not um, a political program for Israel's future, but to offer the kind of scholarly, critical, and I mean critical in all aspects of the world, not just all aspects of the world, and not just um, sort of in the sense of, um, you know, negative criticism, um, and unbiased approaches to studying Israel in all of its facets, um, and, you know, the history and politics of a very complex um, country um, and with all the nuance that um, scholarship can provide. So we're not political propagandists or advocates or um, 
um, politicians of any kind. Um, you know, I can certainly direct those to my colleague Mark Regev down the street in London, who's the ambassador to Israel, um, or, you know, other colleagues um, in other places. But we hope that we're sort of going to be part of the picture in how we think and um, learn about Israel. And I do think that there's something of a lack of that um, in the Jewish world. Um, and hopefully it will be filling a niche that has not, um, you know, really existed or has only come into um, being somewhat recently. Now, something else I wanted to ask you around sort of the future generations and people's approaches to Israel. You wrote an interesting article in Haaretz recently talking about a young Jewish uh, religiously affiliated uh, people in a synagogue that you attend who who kind of had a very ambivalent uh, relationship to to Israel, to the idea of Zionism, to the idea of the Jewish state. And there have been commentators in the, in the States, particularly I'm thinking here people like Peter Baynard, who argue that the images and the the attitudes that coming out of what we're seeing in the territories are affecting Zionism as a whole. And you kind of, from what I got from this article, have a slightly different take, and I, I'm quite interested in, in what you have to say on that. Yeah, so all due respect to my colleague Peter Beinart, um, I think we do have a bit of disagreement. Um, you know, I hope that I'm not overly simplifying his position, but I think that he feels that if, you know, um, every settlement were to disappear tomorrow, then American and diaspora jury more widely would be able to identify with Israel again. In fact, you know, and everyone becomes much more happy with the situation. And I think it goes, you know, much deeper. I think the real, you know, first of all, I think the real elements of the conflict today are not about the settlements. I mean, with pure putting myself out of business as a settlement expert, you know, the settlements are not the problem, or I should say more clearly, they're not the only problem. Um, you know, there are um, five final status agreement issues that have never been able to be entirely resolved, and settlements are only one of them. Settlements, in fact, probably have the best um, technical solutions in terms of, you know, coming to sort of a policy agreement on what to do about them. Um, so it's not really about 1967 or the settlements. It's really about the fundamental issues brought up in 1948, and I'm sure that, you know, this is basically the discourse also of the BDS movement, that this is not about, um, you know, the Israel, the entire the entire state of Israel is a, you know, settlement and a colonialist entity in the Middle East, and I think this is sort of the way um, Palestinians themselves today also see the situation, and that we're, you know, we're really talking about um, you know, the fundamental um, existence of a Zionist entity in the Middle East and of a place where Jews will self-determine their future. Um, we're not really talking about, you know, the settlements over the Green Line anymore, or at least that's, I think, not where the heart of the issue is. And I am, you know, really concerned that, um, you know, the state of Israel um, or the right for Jews to be recognized as anything other than a religious community is definitely um, under attack. And, um, you know, the, the debate has moved so far from when I first started graduate school, where it's sort of fashionable to criticize the Israeli government and to, you know, be outspoken about the occupation to a position where, you know, the rights of Jews to have a state of their own has really been delegitimized. And I am very concerned, um, especially about, you know, what my students who, um, you know, have were born mostly, I guess, in the 1990s or later, really never, didn't really live through the era of the peace process and the hope that that 
connected, um, you know, who just see, you know, this is just a source of conflict for my entire life. What is the state of Israel good for anymore? I have a perfectly good life in the diaspora. And why should I care about the state of Israel and why does it need to exist anymore? Um, and I, I, I do think that this is a pretty prevalent attitude um, amongst, um, you know, a generation maybe a bit younger than us and certainly our generation as well. And, you know, um, and that's um, a, a definite shift in the conversation. I, I certainly agree with you, and I think that there is, uh, I think, around the Jewish world, quite a lot of concern about you know how you 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 keep uh, things going and not keep things going really, but actually start uh, pushing back against all this kind of negative sentiment. But is is the sense that perhaps there's a, a bit of more of a split that we're seeing between the diaspora and Israel than perhaps we're traditionally used to? Yeah, I mean, I would say that when it comes to sort of getting the next generation to identify with Israel, I think that it's a bit of wag the dog here. Um, I think that, you know, the attitudes towards Israel flow not really... I mean, the, you know, the traditional line is, you know, if Israel shaped up its policies and, you know, wasn't doing so many things that we saw in the news every day that people feel discouraged by, then everyone would start identifying with Israel again. And while I think to some extent that's sort of Peter Beiner is also saying that if Israel stopped doing the bad things in the occupied territories and everybody would, you know, then, then, you know, American Jews and diaspora Jews more, more widely could identify with Israel again. Um, I mean, I think to some extent that's true, but I think that really that this flows more, your attitudes towards Israel flow more from your Jewish identity and Jewish, um, you know, um, um, affiliations. And that I think is, um, where we need to start. Um, you know, Israel education is good, and it's important, and obviously I'm highly invested in it, but I think that for the most part, um, if people don't identify um, with um, their Jewishness, with their traditions, with the text of our people, um, with the, you know, very rich history of politics of our culture, um, I don't think they're going to care about Israel or have any feeling that Israel is part of their identity as well. Um, and I think that's maybe where we need to start um, because, you know, the population of the diaspora is highly assimilated other than, you know, the Orthodox population, which do have a very strong identification with Israel. So um, if we want sort of more young liberal Jews to care about Israel, I think they need to start caring about um, a Judaism that's more than sort of Seinfeld and lots of bagels first, um, and then we'll see um, kind of correspondingly um, interest in Israel. Now, of course, there is a tradition, which is sort of a minority tradition, but quite a strong one, of Jews that are highly, um, that are highly identified with their Judaism but are anti-Zionist, and that's the position in our community, and you know our community is made up of a lot of different types of people. Um, but I do think that you know Jewish identification usually does lead also to some kind of Zionist identification of some kind. Now, sir, if you are a young person and you're listening to this and you're interested in these sorts of debates and these sorts of uh, issues. There are, in fact, a lot of resources out there that people can access, young scholars, people looking to write books. Uh, I think there's something called the Israel Institute. There's lots of conferences that go on. What What would you suggest to young people who are interested in this issue and want to get more involved? Well, I, there's no shortage of ways to get involved. It depends what your passion is and any you know anything that you're interested in, whether it's from politics to arts, culture, um, welfare, um, you know, uh, volunteer. 
hearing all kinds of forms of activism, there is an organization or a niche for you. Um, I think the most important thing is to, you know, kind of be out and be proud about how you feel about um, your Judaism and your Zionism and to try and seek out those resources. And I think that people will um, certainly extend the hand to you. Um, but there's different ways of engaging, and this is something that I say to my students all the time, that um, Israel Studies is one way of looking at the field. And when my students are in my classroom, we are professional historians um, and scholars. When you leave my classroom, you can um, approach Israel from other points of view, um, whether that be as a journalist, as an activist, as a volunteer, as a politician, as some kind of ideologue. Um, and those are different avenues that are available to you at any given time, but I think we do have to sort of draw the line between what Israel studies does and what Israel activism or Israel engagement does. Um, and they're just sort of different bits of, um, you know, uh, of a larger puzzle of the ways that you can engage with Israel. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Sarah Hershorn uh, from Oxford University. If people want to get hold of your book or indeed uh, see anything else that you've written, how can they do that? Um, they can drop me an email. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and um, I'd be really happy to be in touch with anyone who's interested in learning more about either things that I've written or other ways that they can engage with Israel or um, become a student or teacher of Israel study. So please get in touch. Dr. Sarah Hirsch on there, coming to us all the way from Oxford University, talking to us about the settler movement, about Israel, about Israel education. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for spending time with us on the new Blue Review, chaifem.com. Oh, such a pleasure, Benji. I really appreciate having, her having me on. Well, there you go. That is Dr. Sarah Hershorn. And uh, go read her book. Uh, she is uh, out there and making interesting contributions to the debates that affect, uh, I think, all Jews all around the world, whether they like it or not. That brings us to the end of the show for today. Thank you for being with us, having joined us. If you want to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. You can get us, Benji at Chai.co.za. That's with an I, not a Y. And uh, also on Twitter at Chai or at uh, Benji underscore Shulman. We'd love to hear your views, or if you want to be on the show, or if you want to get us off the air, whichever you prefer, we don't mind. And regardless, we will look forward to speaking to you next week on the New Blue Review.